All right, we are, um, we are through December. We're into a new year. Are you used to putting an 18 on your checks? Um, we're going back to look at the life of David. We've worked our way through 1 Samuel, and now David is on the throne. He is the king of Israel. And um, this is actually a rather sad uh, chapter in the life of David. I mean, if you spend the hours I've spent with David <laughs> uh, studying about him and teaching him and what a godly man he is, and today we read about his great sin. So, uh, here we are in first, or Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah went into booths and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him. And he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, 
He assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of... Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall? so that he died at Thebes. Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent, sent to, uh, him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So, what are we to make of this chapter? David, the godly man, commits not only adultery, but murder. You know, I I thought of how do we teach this text? Do we go line by line? Do we go section by section? And I I think uh, the best way to bring it home is by looking at it as a whole and asking what should this chapter do to us? And here are, are three things. This chapter should make us, first of all, demolish any spiritual arrogance that we may have. Right? If we think we're pretty holy, read this chapter and it should demolish any arrogance. Secondly, it should make us despise our sin. And thirdly, even in spite of all the tragedy that goes on, We should delight in God's sovereignty because God even uses this mess to bring about good. So so let's look at this first thing. Let's take a look at the the point that this chapter should demolish our arrogance. Why? Well, elsewhere in Scripture, David is called a man after God's own heart. In fact, God rejects Saul because he wants to put in Saul's place a man after his own heart. David is an inspired author. He composed about half the Psalms in the book of Psalms. As you read through the book of 1 and 2 Kings, all the other kings are measured 
by David's godliness. Either they walked like David or they didn't walk like David. So, if someone as godly as David can fall into adultery and murder, none of us is beyond great sin. None of us has any room to be arrogant and say, well, how could that happen? Now, don't misunderstand. I am not saying we all need to live in fear that we can be walking strong with the Lord and then, boom, fall off the cliff and we've found ourselves in a pile of adultery and murder. Okay? I think there are clues in the text that show that David didn't just fall one day. There are clues that show that he was in a state of spiritual lethargy or apathy. So here's the warning. The thing that we should fear most is spiritual apathy. Right? Problem is, when you're in a state of spiritual apathy, that's when you're least concerned about spiritual apathy or even aware that you're in a state of spiritual apathy. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would wake us up and show us if we are walking on the edge and close to being in a state of spiritual apathy. Here, the text gives us some clue as to David's condition. It says, in the spring of the year the time when kings go out to battle. So, so this, where should he have been? What is the author trying to tell us? It's the spring. That's the time when kings, all the kings are out with their troops. That's what he should be doing. But what does David do? David sent Joab, that's the commander of the army, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah but David remained at Jerusalem. Everybody's out. All the other kings are out. All Israel's out. David has gone to war before. Nah, I think I'm going to stay in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Okay, now, if you can zoom by these words quickly, but it's, it's building a picture for us. David's napping while the rest of Israel is fighting. Have you ever noticed how your physical state and your spiritual state are somewhat linked together, Right? When we're spiritually undisciplined, we seem to be undisciplined in a lot of areas in our life. I believe the author here is painting a picture of a godly man who's fallen into a season of spiritual laziness. He doesn't exercise the discipline to fight off a lustful look. And because he's in this condition, he gives in, and he gives in, and he gives in, and he gives in, and falls off 
the cliff. So the question this morning is not, are you or am I capable of committing adultery or murder? We are. We are. Right? The more subtle question is this. Are you in a state of spiritual apathy? That's a terrifying place to be. That's the question. Will you examine yourself this morning and be honest? Are you in a state of spiritual apathy? Now, Scripture warns us about this state. One, one way, by showing us David's life. He was in this state of spiritual apathy. And look at the disaster that happened to him. There's another way Scripture addresses is this, is, is by the Apostle Paul telling us how he fights against apathy, physical and spiritual apathy. In 1 Corinthians 9, he equates the Christian life and fighting against sin to an athlete in training. Look what he says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now I know we've, we've got people who run marathons. If you've run a marathon, raise your hand here. Okay. Um, right. So what was your goal in entering the marathon? Just to, were you going to win it or were you just, just finish. <laughs> finish, right? Most people go, I just want to finish, right? Paul says that's not good enough. In, in this spiritual race, you should run to win. That's, that's the, I mean, I got to give you credit for, was it 26 miles? Point, that point two is the killer, right? I once ran point two miles, Okay. But the attitude that we're to have is I'm not just in it to finish. I'm in it to win it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So it's kind of cool. I'd like to have that 26.2 sticker. Isn't that real, the real reason you entered, the, to get the sticker on the back of the car, right? Um, Lori gave me one once. It was 0, 0.0 to put on my car. <laughs> All right. But, so you do it for a sticker or a trophy. We're talking eternity is what Paul says. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. <gasps> Paul boxed? Yeah. Boxing is it's the Christian thing to do. Now look at verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, uh, virtually every study Bible is going to say something like this. Well, Paul couldn't be disqualified for salvation, so this had to be talking about being disqualified for rewards or ministry. Not so fast. This word, in the King James, they translate it, uh, that I myself should be a castaway or castaway. Um, 
It appears eight times in the New Testament. Every other time it appears, it is referring to a spiritual castaway, one who was ultimately rejected. You say, well, is Paul saying that he has to do this to be saved? No. No. He's saying, if you don't discipline yourself, if you don't walk with the Lord, if you don't fight against sin, and that's the continual state of your life, it shows that he or you were never saved to begin with. He's not saying you'll lose your salvation, but a life of spiritual apathy shows you were never saved to begin with. The sign of true salvation is that you can't continually live that way. You will do the disciplines that lead to growth in godliness. You will not be like David who says, you know, war is for everybody else, but not me. Reading my Bible is for other people. Serving in the church is for other people. Going to Bible study, being accountable is for other people. Boy, this verse should terrify you. Can you really be undisciplined? Now, in David's case, God corrected his season of apathy and he came to repentance. Now, he had a lifetime of consequences for the rest of his life. Okay? But this passage should terrify us and cause us to examine ourselves on this first Sunday of the year as to whether we have fallen into a state of spiritual apathy. So the first thing that this story, this true story should do is have us examine ourselves. Are we disciplined? Are we doing the things that we need to do to walk strong with the Lord? If not, wake up. All right. Second thing that this chapter should do, make us despise our sin. All right. Look at the chain effect. His Spiritual laziness leads to a lustful glance and that lust festers and it leads to adultery. Then he finds out she's pregnant. So he's got to do the cover-up and he ends up calling her husband and manipulating Uriah. Uriah doesn't play. So he has to kill him. He lures Joab in to his sin. He murders Uriah. And we're going to see that it wasn't just Uriah. There were other soldiers who died too. There is a slippery slope here. So we should despise our sin 
Because once it starts the avalanche, watch out. You know, each one of these can be a little test of our spiritual condition. But let's talk about laziness for just a second. Um, now, some people go, oh, well, that's not me. I am anything but lazy. I am so busy. Wait a minute. Some people are busy but not productive. Busyness is not the same thing as being productive. By the way, you know what I think about busyness? I think every one of us is just about as busy as we decide to be. I think we're all about as busy as we decide to be. Okay? To be busy with things that ultimately don't matter is lazy. So don't, don't pacify yourself and say, oh, I'm busy, busy, busy. So what? Being busy, Winnie the Pooh was busy. Count all the bees in the sky. <laughs> What's that song? <laughs> Chase all the clouds. Yeah. Being busy doesn't mean you're productive. You know, usually um, sometime in a year, I either preach on the parable of the talents or I refer to the parable of the talents. The story is of the king or the, the business owner who gives three of his servants a different amount of talents. He says, go, put these talents that I've given you to work. And the, the, the purpose is to expand the kingdom. And then they have to give an account. And if you've produced, you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But the guy who produced nothing was called a wicked, lazy servant. Some people are going to say, oh, I was just so busy, Lord. I was so busy. I didn't have time for Bible study. I didn't have time to read my Bible. I didn't have time. I didn't have time. And he's going to say, you chose to waste your life with busyness. So, how are you doing when it comes to spiritual laziness? Right. Second test, lust. David, in his apathetic state, let lust fester and turn him into a voyeur. One way to test how you're doing spiritually is to ask this question. Are you fighting or fantasizing? Are you fighting or fantasizing? Now, you say, well, where's the line? Okay. Um, I, I don't know that I can draw a nice, clear line for you. Martin Luther said this way. He said, when it comes to lust... You can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from building a nest in your hair. Okay? When you let them linger that long, and there's a nest in your head, it's too long. Okay? So, here's a 
question for evaluation to, to figure out where you're doing, how you're doing spiritually. Are you fighting or fantasizing? Okay. So his lust then leads to adultery. Now, we did a whole series on the Ten Commandments on Wednesday night. We talked about uh, adultery. There's a lot that could be said. But let me just say this. When it comes to adultery, for a man, it usually starts with his eyes. For a woman, it usually starts with a conversation. Okay? With a man, it's his eyes. With a woman, it's a nice conversation that maybe you enjoy a little too much that leads to wanting another one and another one and another one. So, question, are you flirting around the edges? Are you flirting around the edges? Okay. Then, uh, Bathsheba goes home, sends word to David, I'm pregnant. He goes, oh no. Um, <laughs> everybody's going to know because her husband is away at war. I know. I'll bring him back. They'll sleep together. She has a baby nine months later. Everything's covered. So he calls for Uriah. And he manipulates him. He acts like he cares. How's the war? How's Joab? How's it go? Oh, great. Okay, go home now. David could give a rip about Uriah. He just wants to cover his tracks. So <laughs> Uriah doesn't go home. He's like, everybody else is out at war. I am not going to relax. I'm going to sleep um, at the door of the palace. So David gets him drunk. And Uriah still stays at the door. Some people have said this. Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. At least at this point. So, here's a question. How often do you fake caring about people when you really don't give a rip? Or how often are you kind to people to get your way? part of the mix here. Okay. Well, Uriah doesn't play, so David resorts to plan B, kill him. And he sends his own death warrant with Uriah to Joab. Writes a note. Put Uriah in the front lines, advance against the enemy, pull back, so he dies. So he dies. Okay. So what, what David does here is he lures someone else into his sin. It's bad enough that he has sinned. Now he's asking others to participate in his sin. You know, Jesus said this, but whoever causes one of these little ones. Now, uh, in the context, Jesus has taken a little child as an example of a brand new believer. But when he says, these little ones, he's ultimately referring here not to children, 
but to other believers. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. It'd be better for you to be dead than to lure other people into your sin. Right? Now, on the other hand, Joab's no saint. We've already seen he, he can murder people. He murdered Abner, remember? Okay. Isn't it interesting that those involved in ungodly lifestyle seem to have a sixth sense when it comes to finding others who will cover for them? Or in Joab's case, actually do the dirty work. When Joab got the note, if he was a true friend, he should have done what Abigail did years earlier. Remember, David was going to kill this guy, Nabal, because he was mad at him. But Abigail, the wife of Nabal, comes out and pleads with David. And she says, My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. Slow down, David. Think what you're doing. This will be on your conscience for the rest of your life. And David comes to his senses. And then he praises Abigail. Blessed be your discretion. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. So she doesn't go along with it. She says, stop, think what you're doing. And changes his murderous effort. Not Joab. You know, again, those flirting on the edge of sin seem to have this sixth sense about being able to find others who won't call them out. Those who won't make them feel bad about their sin. And I'm not just talking about outside the church. You can find people inside the church who will give you a pass. David will be held accountable for involving Joab in his sin, and Joab will be held accountable for not holding David accountable for his sin. So, here's a question. Are you seeking out people who can really help you grow? Or just finding people who will let you get away with being a David? Right. Finally, this leads to mass murder. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Joab's just executing the plan, advance and then pull back, but some people die along with Uriah. So David's got the blood of many people on his hands. So here's the question. Do you see yourself in any of these areas? 
It's a wake-up call. My prayer all week has been, first of all, thank you, Lord, for the weather in California. That was the first prayer. Okay. But secondly, Lord, wake us up. I would love to have a bunch of people go, yeah, I'm, I, I want to I seriously pursue the Lord. I want to be involved in ministry. I want to be involved in Bible study. I want to be in the Word every day because of David's negative example. Now, we're going to see next week that not only was this tragedy set in in line by David's sin. But the rest of David's life has disastrous consequences. But in spite of it all, let's end with this. Let's let's at least delight in the sovereignty of God. That even with all this disaster, God is still working all things together for good. So, We're going to find out that God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David. David repents of his sin. But there are horrible consequences. You know, some people, some some of you just need to hear that lesson this morning. Forgiveness by God doesn't necessarily mean there are no consequences no earthly consequences to your sin. You know, some people truly repent of their sin, but then they get mad at God and others because there continues to be consequences from their sin. They say, God hasn't forgiven me, or other people haven't forgiven me. Why? Well, because if, if I were forgiven, my life would be rosy again. Well, It doesn't work that way. You know, the thief on the cross, was he forgiven? Did he go to heaven? Did he still have nails in his arms and his feet? And Did they still take a club and break his legs? And did he still hang there? There were consequences, earthly consequences for his behavior. But, In spite of David's sin and in spite of all these consequences, God continued to work his plan. Now, as we end, four four quick things I want you to see that God does. First of all, he could have left David in that state of spiritual apathy, but he sends the prophet Nathan. Maybe today he's sending me to wake you up. He, he sends Nathan to confront David, and David repents. You know, repentance is a gift of God. All right, so first thing he does is he gives David the gift of repentance and forgives him. Second thing he does, he could have abandoned David from the throne He did that with Saul, but God already made a promise to David. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God is relying on his promise. He could have 
done away with David, but he lets him continue to be king and all of his descendants are kings. So the second thing he does is he preserves his king kingship. Third thing he does is this. So David's now killed Uriah. He marries Bathsheba. Now David had many wives. We don't even know how many wives he had. He had a whole bunch of them. And he had lots and lots of children. Bathsheba wasn't his first wife or his second wife. But of all the children who could succeed David on the throne, who ends up on the throne? Solomon, the son of Bathsheba. Right? Talk about grace. Talk about redemption. Solomon, probably, when, when we talk about greatness and wealth and power and wisdom, the greatest king who ever lived, the product of David and Bathsheba. But fourthly, and most importantly, eventually through David and Bathsheba and Solomon and the next son and the next son and the next son is born who? Jesus. Right? And because of Jesus, David could truly be forgiven. The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 4. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There's the gospel right there. You are not counted righteous because of your works. You can never do enough. You're counted righteous by trusting in Christ who died in your place and who lived in your place. And, and by faith, you're connected to him and you are given his righteousness. Then Paul goes on, he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, and now Paul's going to quote a psalm of David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, David didn't have as full a picture as we have. He understood God is merciful. God allows a substitute. God demands blood. He didn't fully understand that his great-great-great-great-great-grandson would be the substitute. Or we don't know how much he understood. We understand that Jesus' blood was shed to forgive our sins. And we, like David, can be covered by the righteousness of Christ.